Hello everybody and welcome to episode 41 here at the Desert Tiger Podcast, the show where we love to dive into the motivation and inspiration, the drive and dreams, the journeys and stories of various people working inside the entertainment industry, those various artists working in music, athletics, who are writing, who are directing, who are acting, all those various individuals, we love to bring their experiences and their stories and have a few laughs at the same time too, here every single week. And before I go any further, I would like to say that this is a fan-supported and listener-supported podcast that is released every single Thursday on DesertTigerEntertainment.com, on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, CastBox, all the various places that you can get podcasts and all the different apps that are available. So if you could go ahead and hit follow or subscribe, that would be fantastic and goes one step further in growing this show. All right, you guys, let's get into episode 41. Music, athletics, arts, and entertainment. The Desert Tiger Podcast with Colton Gishwater. And that is me, your host here on every single episode of the DTP. My name is Colton G, and how are you today? On episode 41, that's right, this episode that you are currently listening to, my guest is American musician and activist John Dist. Although it would take John a while to grow into the role through his beliefs and his ideals to the activist that he is today, it would also take some time for his music to develop to the rock and roll style it is today as well. Although John's heart belonged in rock and roll, his father saw the value in a classical music education and his parents convinced John that it was worthy to pursue a university degree in classical music. So John did pursue this and we are going to discuss a lot of his experiences with this and why once he graduated with a master's degree, He really didn't feel like it was what he wanted to pursue, and how his love of rock and roll ended up being sparked again as he began playing in various different bands, sharing the stage with different musicians, getting experience as a song and lyric writer, and growing as a singer himself. Eventually, as time usually brings, these bands would end up parting ways and John would end up deciding that he wanted to pursue his own voice. This would end up leading to two, well so far, two solo records from John himself. The first being Red Flag and the second being his latest release, American University, an album that John spent over three years researching various novels, books, facts, and everything that he could pull in about the John F. Kennedy assassination and poured it into an album 
where he sh- tells a story not only through the eyes of John F. Kennedy himself, but also through his brother, his mistress, Lee Harvey Oswald, and Lee Harvey Oswald's mistress, which makes for a compelling story told through a novel, which also brings to question what really did happen that day and just how much has been covered up. We're going to discuss all of this with John, all of his research, his thoughts, what he found. We're going to get into it. We're going to get some of the details on his mistress, on Lee Harvey Oswald, all that. This is a great conversation. I had an amazing time talking to John about his music, his passions, about various conspiracies. If you guys know me personally, you know I have always kind of been really big on these things. But before I get into my interview, of course we have to kick into G's jukebox here on the podcast. Those of you who are regulars know that that's where we play you some tunes right before our interview and we play you another track in the middle of the interview as well. So let's get some quarters ready. We have a nice big stack of quarters here. I'd give it a shake for you, but I am afraid that it is going to spill out everywhere. So let's load up the jukebox and I believe that I am going to pick a track off John's latest album, American University, and this is entitled Dirty Business. Masters of Deception From the agency's inception
Join the many who have died Will make it look like suicide A Manchurian candidate A preferred way to assassinate But that had not yet come to be In November of 1963 Dirty business The Desert Tiger Podcast. We are here with activist slash artist musician John Dist. How is it going this evening, my friend? It's going great. It's hot here in uh, Los Angeles. It is also hot here in British Columbia. So, (laughs) wow! Even at ten at night, it's hot, huh? Oh yeah, it's been. It's going to be. 30 degrees for Celsius all week. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit. Huh. I know it was 105 Fahrenheit today here. 105? Yeah, that's what's on the Oh, wow, yeah, you guys are like pretty bad. way hotter than here then. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm, because like, yeah, we're not even going to get close to that this week, I don't think. Maybe with the humidity. You guys got us topped. Right, right. <laughs> a little bit toastier out there in California, though, I presume. Yeah, it depends on where you are, too. Just over the hill, um, I'm in the San Fernando Valley in Sherman Oaks. Just over the hill, it's, you know, by the coast, and it's, you know, 10 degrees, maybe 20 degrees cooler. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't been down there since I was, like, a little kid, so... Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So did you grow up in California? I grew up in California, yeah. I grew up uh, in the Inland Empire, and I came out here for college. Um, and stayed in L.A. ever since, except for a small stint in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hmm. Cool. Cool. So what did you go to university for? Classical guitar. Very nice. I had a I had a secret personal, you know, goal of coming to LA and starting a band, but college was my, uh, you know, way to get my parents to pay for it. You know. Yeah. And uh, the band thing just I just never worked it out, and and I ended up quitting playing rock and roll for many years and focusing on classical music. Mm-hmm. So. It's, uh, it wasn't until after, way after college, that I started getting back into playing rock and roll. Okay, so when did you first get introduced to music? What was your first instrument, and at what age did you actually first applying yourself to it? Well, I used to pull my parents' records off the wall when I was really little, like really small, and, and I was always pulling the records out and scratching them and stuff. So they bought me a record player when I was very small. And um, 
for a few years I didn't pay attention to music. When I was about 10, I started to get back into music. And um, that's when I started playing guitar. I wanted to play rock and roll. I wanted to be a Israeli. And my dad said, um, "You, if you're going to take guitar lessons, you're going to play classical. So that's that's how that happened. I was mm-hmm. kind of doing both since, since I was 10. Mm-hmm. They were it's been difficult to... for me. Yeah. Sorry. No worries. No worries. I've been kind of like, you know, multiple personality in that way, like dual personality, like between playing classical music and playing rock and roll music. And it took me a long time to figure out who I was as a musician. Definitely, because you have that outside influence that's trying to tell you, oh, well, I would like you to go this way, but that's not truly where your heart is. So you're not really sure who you are, what you want, because you're not able to pursue that. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. And I love both, you know, but mm. I think one rules over, you know, as far as like what I, I, I go by, for years I was playing music that I didn't listen to, you know, styles of music that I didn't listen to. And now it's like I'm playing the style of music that I listen to all the time. So I think that's kind of what tells me I'm doing the right thing. Yeah, definitely appeals to the heart a lot more. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So, how long did you end up pursuing the classical guitar? Because did was that like straight off from ten that he wanted you to take those classical guitar lessons? Um, well, it was kind of an excuse to go to college. You know, like I did it for two and a half years, and I started playing electric strictly. And then when it came time for college, I didn't want to go to college, and my mom said you could study music, and I was like, okay. And uh, and classical guitar was my way of, you know, doing that because mm-hmm. the instrument that they, you know, that they taught in universities that I played. So um, I did it serious. You know, I I didn't start out very serious about it, but I ended up getting very serious about it, and I ended up getting a master's. That's why I went to Albuquerque, New Mexico to get a master's degree in classical guitar. So I went way beyond what I planned to do with it. Mm-hmm. So even though it wasn't exactly what you wanted to pursue, you still did it to the best of your ability and to the furthest degree. Yeah, and at the time I thought I did want to pursue it. You know, like I really got into it. Like, you know, and music changed so many times over the years, you know, like the stuff I grew up listening to became out of vogue and then it's in vogue and out of vogue and different things are in vogue and out of vogue. And it's like, I was, you know, looking at what was popular and, and I wasn't feeling like I was really interested in doing anything even remotely like it. Or, or even if I liked it, it wasn't something I could do authentically and I wouldn't feel comfortable like, all of a sudden jumping onto some bandwagon, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think over the years, I, I I remember watching a Lemmy video, a Motorhead video, and watching Lemmy at like age 60-something, you know, doing his thing, and I realized Lemmy never changed from the beginning of Motorhead till the end of Motorhead. You know, he did the same thing, and I, and I realized, I was like, that's who I want to be. Like, I just just play what you want to play figure out who you are and just do it till the end you know absolutely i love that ideal very much where it's 
rather than trying to follow the trend, be who you are because that's being honest to not only yourself but the person who is listening to your music. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And especially in today's day and age, it's a lot harder to find genuine musicians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So after you got out of college, how long did you continue pursuing the classical style? <laughs> Not long. I did a I did a CD and uh I very quickly realized that um, I don't know. Just I just realized that it wasn't wasn't for me, you know. And I, also, I realized that if I was going to be successful, I would need many more years of support. You know, I'd have to travel and do uh, competitions, and just do, doing competitions is crazy. I mean, you really have to. It has to be your job, you know, mm-hmm. and it's so expensive. You have to travel. You have to pay to be in the competitions, and you have to practice, you know, eight hours a day or so, and it's it's impossible to do that while you're working. And so my parents had already helped me, you know, for years and years through college, and, and I was like, there's just no way that I can ask them to, you know, and to do that. I did, like, one competition, and and I realized that also that the competitions are so political, you know, uh, the guy I went to study with was my favorite guitarist, but he was very unpopular, you know, in, as far as uh, pol- guitar politics in, in the classical guitar community. Like, he'd been banned from a bunch of festivals and stuff. And it's just like crazy politics with him. And I realized, like, I was his student. There's no way that, <laughs> you know, I, I already had that working against me, you know. It, it just, uh, it. Hmm. I realized that it was just too much. I didn't want to be a part of that world. Yeah, definitely. So right off the bat, your first experience with it was just sour because the fact that who you studied under and who you were capable of studying under is they're going to allow that to hold you back as a musician or try and say that you're a worse guitar player just because they have an opinion of that individual. Yeah, or you know, or or a higher opinion of someone who studied at say somebody who teaches at Harvard or somebody who teaches at you know a conservatory somewhere or Juilliard. You know, if you're a student of somebody from Juilliard, the judges are going to probably go, "Oh, you're so and so student," and you know, it's just it's really going to reflect on you. Yeah, so, so it's it's not even all about the creativity or the ability of the students themselves it's basically became a backboard politicking like a lot of other things has become yeah exactly it felt like it you know i mean that's just one aspect of it that made it you know it made me think that i might not even have a shot no matter how good i get you know because of this political stuff like it's just too big of a risk and too too expensive and you know i just was like so I, I did I did like different styles of music for a while. I did like using my nylon string guitar, playing some Latin pop things. I did some producing, and then in 2000, I think it was 2004, the first Velvet Revolver album came out, and it just blew my mind. And when I heard, I played that album in my car like every day for a year, 
and I realized like I have to play rock and roll, and that's when I ever since then that's what I've been doing. Mm-hmm. So have you been recording rock and roll for fourteen years then? Uh, in one form or another, I had a band um, called Bully with uh, um, some friends and and a female vocalist, and we did that for about four years and after that they, they all moved away and then I was stuck by myself and I did some acoustic music and I thought that's when I you know like 10 years ago is when I first started to sing and I did a bunch of acoustic stuff and then finally in like 2013 I put out a an EP with a band with me singing and then I've done two full-length albums since then. So I don't really count anything before the two full-length albums because those are when I really feel like I've finally figured it out. <laughs> yeah, because those were... You it's feel... like a lifetime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Took you a, a bit of time to find your specific voice. Yeah, it took me forever. Like, I wish I would have known, you know, all this stuff when I was like 18 years old. <laughs> well, without a doubt, Crazy. but it's like we discussed earlier, having those outside influences, it definitely makes it harder to see through all of these things and be able to find out who you are and what your sound is. Yeah. And things have informed, you know, things informed me. My music education informs my songwriting and my arranging and you know, like I can, I can write harmony parts because I studied harmony and, you know, like there's, there's things that, you know, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing if I hadn't gone the path that I went. So really it's, I'm, everything worked out just fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. Definitely. So how much does that master's degree in classical music still apply to the albums that you're writing now? Well, um, specifically the master's degree was with that guy I told you about. His name's Michael Chaplain. And he really turned me on to to just like certain certain truths about music that no one else ever told me. Mm -hmm. Um, Mainly about the importance of melody in relation to everything else. And I don't know, it just sort of became um, a way I think of music that... uh, I don't think very many people do think of music that way. And it helped me with songwriting. It helps me with everything I do musically. Um, that's a, that's a big part of it. Yeah, absolutely. So one question before we move on from your schooling and those experiences, what is the payoff mm-hmm. of one of these guitar contests? Cause for you to put your own travel on the line and to have to, actually apply to go into it like there has to be some form of like you know like payoff at the end some form of upside where like what does the winner receive like is there something for the second place like how does that break down uh you you get the prestige of having one um you I think sometimes they give you a tour um, and you just, 
it depends on how big the competition is. I mean, it could just be like a cash prize, I guess, or mm-hmm. year supply of strings. I mean, who knows? <laughs> depending on the competition, but the big ones are. Um, you just get. I think you just mainly get um, to add it to your resume, and it will help you if you. I mean, the only thing that these people do is they teach at universities or, or conservatories or junior colleges or whatever. Yeah. Um, that's the only way they can make any money. That's the other thing about it that didn't really attract me is there it's it's a new field in universities. They're all of the faculty are relatively young. None of them are going to be retiring anytime soon. And um, there weren't any jobs, you know, because pretty much every school had one already. So, um, and that's what my, my instructor, you know, my professor told me, he's like, there's no jobs. He's like, you know, he's the one who told me, he's like, you should just go play in a band. There's, there's no, there's no future in this mm-hmm. classical guitar world. No, I mean the only way to do it is to just play concerts for free for years and sell you records at, at, at concerts and eventually build a following and you know. But I still think you'd have to teach and you know it, it's it's uh, it's a demanding thing. Mm-hmm. But then rock and roll is the same way. I mean you you know you're going to play for very small audiences unless you're supported by uh, a corporation. It's true. It really depends on how you want to go about it. It's do you want to yeah. play in front of people that fully enjoy your product? Because you can can still go the rock and roll route and then you still have that master's degree where later on, say, a bunch of these teachers end up retiring. You can still end up taking that teacher job later on in life where you don't have to like necessarily pigeonhole yourself right in that situation right now. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess it's possible. My my dad's a professor. He's like, if you don't do it now, you're never going to be able to do it. <laughs> That's what he told me. And I was like, I guess I'm not going to do it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Who knows, though, right? The future could always hold various options. Yeah, I mean, you know, working for a living, I realized, like, it would be a pretty cool job to be teaching at a university. Mm-hmm. If I could do it full time, you know, and a lot of a lot of these jobs are part time too. It's, you know, a lot of, a lot of music teachers are, and professors in general, adjunct professors, they have to jump around from one school to the other, teach a class here, teach a class there. They don't even have benefits. You know, a lot of them struggle very hard. So yeah, without a doubt, it's not necessarily a secure path on its own right itself. No. It's really not. Okay. So, Only for a few. Hmm. So these last two albums, you would say, is the strongest you've been. Has it been the first time that you've actually contributed the lyrics to a project as well? No, I started writing lyrics when I did when I started doing acoustic stuff. Okay. When I was in the band Bully with the, with the girl singer, uh, my bass player, he was also a film director. He he wrote all the lyrics and I wrote all the music. And it wasn't until that broke up that I decided to start writing lyrics and eventually started to write political lyrics. Okay. So that shift in politics, does that begin with that first solo record? Uh, the first full-length solo record is the first fully political project I've done. I've, I've done songs here and there, you know? Yeah. But that was when I decided, like, 
because I had done an EP before that. It was like one love song and two political songs. And it, it just was like, what do I do with this? You know, there, <laughs> I, I couldn't really do interviews and talk about, you know, it just wasn't, it just, I don't know. I, I realized at that point that that's not what I wanted to do. Yeah. It was, I was way more, you know, I was really, I was bugging people about things I was learning and sending them emails and posting links and driving everybody crazy. And I realized I need an outlet for this and from all the stuff I'm learning about the world and, and music was an obvious outlet for it. So it kind of came together that way. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So that first album, that's Red Threat, correct? Red, Red flag, flag, yeah. Red flag. Okay, so yeah. what is the direction on that one? That was sort of like post nine eleven America. Okay. Um, it was it was Bush and Obama. It was it, it was actually during Obama. So it was um, I was, you know, Obama's crackdown on Occupy Wall Street is is part of it, um, like. Uh, just like perpetual war, um, torture, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I was I was writing about. Okay, so when did you start looking into the political landscape? Like, when did that become important to you? Was that during the Bush administration? Yeah, it was like really the Iraq War. Um, blue, you know, <laughs> everything they were up to was just like. I mean, you know how people are freaking out about Donald Trump right now? I was freaking yeah. out about Bush mm-hmm. at the time. Um, I, I'm like, I'm just not even really paying too much attention to Donald Trump, but but Bush freaked me out. And then when Obama didn't punish the torturers and, you know, had a kill list and, you know, he did so many horrible things. Like, I was, I couldn't believe it that, that you know, I thought Bush was going to stay in power forever. You know, yeah. I didn't even think he was going to relinquish power. Then we get Obama, and I breathe a sigh of relief, and then I find out he's doing even worse things in some ways. And so then it was like, whoa, you know, it was it was really scary to me. Mm-hmm. That's just, uh, it. it's almost another head on the hydra, right? Yeah, it's like the continuation of gov- continuity of government or something, mm-hmm. they call it. Mm-hmm. Different faces with yeah somewhat the same agenda at the end of it. <laughs> yep, definitely. So, with the Iraq War and everything else, did you start diving into politics right away? Was it something that you like progressed into slowly? How did you get into that world? Well. I remember not being a fan of Clinton. I was probably pretty uh, disgusted with his affair. Yeah. Um, and that election, I voted for Ralph Nader. And but but I knew I didn't want Bush to be. I mean, I'm in California, and it always goes to the Democrats. So I felt safe voting third party, and I always do. But um, I, I did not want Bush to be president. And that's the other thing, too, that got me into politics. Like, I, I was so blown away that the Supreme Court gave the presidency to him without, you know, stopping. They stopped a recount in the middle of it. And it just, you know, that was also something that really affected me. So mm-hmm. there's that, and there's 9-11, and there's the Iraq War. 
even the Afghanistan war. I mean, Afghanistan offered to give up Osama bin Laden if we gave them proof that he was responsible for 9-11. And we said, no, we don't have to give you proof. We're going to attack you, you know. Mm-hmm. So I learned that right away. At, like Chomsky was talking about that. And then Chomsky and I, and I saw that interview or that talk he gave on the DVD, and that blew my mind too. Like something weird's going on, you know. Yeah, definitely, because right off the bat, how do, how hard does that betray your trust as a voting citizen to just see oh the God. Supreme Court just step in and just be like, okay, you know what, we're deciding that we're just going to go with this rather than recounting because your votes don't actually matter. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, man. And, you know, the Supreme Court's done two other things that I know of that have just been extremely just terrifying one was the, the Sabelle Edmonds case I don't know if you're familiar with her uh, she was a FBI whistleblower um, she I don't even know what all her secrets were but she knew a lot and a lot of it I think was about 9-11 but a lot of it was about FBI corruption and stuff it went all the way to the Supreme Court and they refused to hear the case then we have years later Obama signs um, a bill that allows for indefinite detention of Americans without trial. Mm-hmm. And he signed it on New Year's Eve at midnight. I think it was 2011. Like, obviously he's signing something shady at midnight on New Year's Eve when no one's paying attention, you know. So it turns out it's, just, it's the NDAA, which they sign every year, which has, like, I don't know, budget or something in it. But mm-hmm. it had this in there that, you know, a lot, it legalized indefinite detention of Americans without trial if they were deemed to be helping terrorists or something. But it was vague language, and um, some journalists sued him, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they refused to hear the case. So it's like that just proves that there's no uh, balance of power, (laughs) you know? Without a doubt, because each time somebody comes in, they get to put in, like, a certain number of Supreme Court members as long as so many retire, correct? Yeah, but then when something that important gets to them, they just they can just say, No, we're not gonna we're not we're just gonna not rule on this mm-hmm. and let it stay. You know what I mean? Like it matters crazy. matters of the highest degree that should be important to the nation and they're just like, nah, here's the rug. Where's the broom? <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. So how do you shift from like an album where you're telling multiple pieces of like the Bush and um, Obama administration to focusing on one specific event with your new album American University? Well, I I, there's so many reasons. I don't even know how it happened, but the, all these things came at me in different angles and informed me that I had to make this record. And it's so, I could tell the story a million different ways, and they're all true. And I, I don't even know what the answer is myself. But I think the most obvious is that one was, you know, these two deep events that happened in America. One was 9-11 and the other one's uh, JFK. Mm-hmm. I think both of them were kind of the same thing happening you know 
I can understand that for sure. I, I feel the same way. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I definitely do. As someone who is on the, uh, is from the outside of America, I kind of view both of them with a skeptical eye. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, how do you even begin to research into something as important and as historical as this? Because you want to get it right. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is like I just fell into this, and um, I, I was, you know, I was listening to an interview on the radio which, you know, there's never anything good on the radio. But um, this happened to be uh, a progressive talk show host named Mike Malloy, who used to have some pretty cool people on. And I think maybe it was even a guest DJ, so it wasn't even him, talking to Ray McGovern, who's a former CIA guy. And he said that he believed that Obama and Leon Panetta, who was head of the CIA at that time, were afraid of the CIA. And that just blew my mind, you know, because I've been following politics for maybe 10 years at that point, very seriously, maybe less, but I'd never heard anybody say something like that before. And I was like, what, you know, (laughs) what are you talking about? It's the president and the head of the CIA. How can they be afraid of the CIA? Yeah. And this was a CIA guy saying that, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I think that I found another interview from him and the person who interviewed him had interviewed other people. And from there I started to hear interviews, you know, more along the lines of deep politics. And it just kind of opened my eyes to so many things. There was this, this show called the boiling frogs podcast. And I think my first record was a response to that largely a response to that podcast. Hmm. Uh, those, because they had different shows on the podcast feed. And one of them was this guy, Russ Baker, I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, he, he was a mainstream journalist who wrote a book about the Bush family. And he heard George H.W. Bush, he calls him Poppy Bush, mm-hmm. first President Bush, say in an interview when asked that he didn't remember where he was when JFK was killed. And so he was working on a book on the Bushes, and he was like, huh, I want to find out where he was, because everybody remembers where they were yeah. when JFK was killed. And turns out he was in Texas, turns out he was maybe even in Dallas, and turns out he had been in the CIA since its inception, almost. Mm-hmm. And, and like, nobody knows it, you know? And so basically, there's, like, a few chapters in his book about the JFK assassination. Wow. And... Um, he talks about it in a way that's like, uh, you know, like it's a fact. It's not a theory. And mm-hmm. he was a mainstream journalist who never thought about it before, but he stumbled into it. And for me, hearing him tell that story and reading his book, I stumbled into it through him. You know what I mean? So then I start to read other books. And, you know, it just like it just took me down the rabbit hole, as they say. Yeah, without a doubt, because, I mean, how can somebody say that they don't remember that? Because it's exactly like, where were you when 9-11 happened? Because everybody remembers where they were when they heard that. Yeah. Like, even in Canada, like, school stopped. (laughs) Right. 
And, like, wow. we were all, like, pulled aside and told, like, this huge tragedy had happened and... Like, just, like, how do you feel about this? And we actually, like, sat down and discussed it as a class. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Yeah, it's... No, continue. Uh, no, it's just, it was a extremely powerful, powerful day. Like, just week, month. I mean, it just, everything stopped, you know? Yeah. People were out on the street you know, just walking, and it was so dark. It was such a dark, dark time. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that the, the Kennedy assassination was similar, you know? It almost sure. would have to be. I mean, how could it yeah. not? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So when do you... So you begin to question things after Afghanistan says that they don't want to go to war. Where else does this, like, begin to lead you? You mean from that point? Yeah. Well, you know, like, I remember remember when they started talking about the torture memos that were, you know, used to justify torture. Mm -hmm. And, like, that blew my mind. And I'm, like, sending, you know, articles to my friends when torture, we're torturing. It's like, you know, there's a memo talking about how it's legal and, you know, and everybody's like, yeah, whatever. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. I just took this stuff really hard. And in, in college, I learned about a composer named Dmitry Shostakovich and he worked, he was a composer during the time of Stalin. And he was probably the most famous composer in the world at that time. And, uh, he wrote, um, music, about what was happening and and he um it was instrumental music but it was that's what he was writing about you know and um that was something that really influenced me uh since college so i had it in me to to first of all well i was this is what i was gonna say i was reading his i read his his um memoir like two or three times where he, he told the stories about what was happening mm-hmm. in, in Stalinist Russia, you know, Soviet Union under Stalin. And I started to see those kinds of things happening here in America. And that's when I start. that's why I was so alarmed by, you know, surveillance and things like that. Cause it was just like the Soviet Union, you know, it was, uh, it was like we we said that they were bad because of all the things that they did, but we're doing those things now. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and somehow we found a way to justify these actions instead. Yeah, and so now everybody talks about you know fascism and stuff because of Trump, mm-hmm. but um, I, I, to me, I was seeing creeping signs of of totalitarianism back under Bush, and it was freaking me out and and. You know, I think that's really what got me be, to become obsessed with politics. Because I was really terrified. I still am. <laughs> Absolutely, it's still the political situation is very difficult and still very much on eggshells. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's uh, there's actually a quote on your album art from. Joseph Goebbels, which is 
like another thing that sort of like shows just how the actions of the past are sort of rearing their ugly heads again. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same tricks, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Governments play the same tricks over and over. Without a doubt, where it's it, is if you can just continue saying the same thing over and over and over again, there's going to be people who just believe it, and there's going to be some people who question it, but eventually they themselves might just drop off that ideal and lose interest. Right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how much research actually goes into something like American University? Because you're looking at this JFK assassination through not only JFK's eyes, but also the First Lady, his mistress... Lee Harvey Oswald, like all these different characters. How do you like how much research actually goes into this and where do you like what are your sources for all this? Where do you find all of this? Well, I part of it started, you know, after reading the Russ Baker book or maybe in the middle of reading it. No, it was after I read it. I, in 2013, I went to a 50th anniversary conference in Santa Barbara. And I just sat there all day listening to these researchers who had dedicated their lives to studying this, talk about it, and talk about their books. And I was just, I think that's really when it hit me that I wanted to make this record, you know. And I bought, you know, almost all their books and read, read tons of books. And just, um, there's a reading list on my website. If you go to jundis.com, there's a reading list of all the books that I think really influenced it. I read a few more, but those were the meat and potatoes of, of you know, what informed the record. Um, but that that conference really uh, is was a big, you know, it was a really good starting point for me. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay, so you took three years to factor through all of this information, correct? It was it was about three years, two two three years, yeah. And also while I was writing the songs, I was still reading, and I hadn't written all the songs. So that last year, uh, I was still um, researching and writing at the same time, and I'm still reading afterwards. But you know, like, but it was like reading and thinking about it and planning it. You know, trying to figure out how am I going to make a record out of this stuff. Like, I had no idea how it would turn out. Like I was telling a few friends about it, but I had no idea how I was really going to do it or if it was even going to work, you know? And, uh, I, I started, I think it was, I think it was 2015 maybe is when I started writing the lyrics. So I always start with lyrics first. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think that's when I started. And by the end of that year, I had all the songs written arranged and then I just sort of put the final tracks on for the next year and then uh, it took me a while to to get all the actors in there and and the voices Um, so there was a a, I took my time on it because I didn't want to have any regrets you know yeah and I so far I don't think I have any regrets I think I pretty much did it I didn't want to have a like have it be done and then get an idea oh I should have done this you know (laughs) Mm mm-hmm 
So I just sort of took my time, and I've never taken my time as much as I took my time on Okay, well, it is a very important subject, and it's definitely something that people in my generation or younger than that are definitely, like, not getting to hear about unless they're listening to people like Jesse Ventura or Joe Rogan, and let's face it, a lot of them yeah. aren't. <sighs> right. Yeah. I read, I have one of the books I read is, is Jesse Ventura's book, uh, They Killed Our President. There's a lot of fact. it's like little facts, um, not really written out as, as like a book, but it's just tons of facts. It's really good. Yeah, I've heard him speak on the subject a couple times before, and I know like when he had a TV show that he had one of like the United States Marines' best snipers like attempt mm-hmm. to make the Lee Harvey Oswald shot, and he just could not do it for the life of him. Yeah. Okay, everybody, it's about that time where we take a break in the middle of the show. We hit the jukebox one more time. We give it a good old whack. Make sure that it is still working. We load up those quarters. And first and foremost, once again, I want to go and say that this is a fan-supported and listener-supported podcast And without you guys, we wouldn't be able to take these opportunities to do things like play these awesome tracks, get these awesome interviews, and everything else. So thank you to everyone who has subscribed. Thank you to everyone who has reached out to the show, everyone who follows us on social media. And especially thank you to everybody who has picked up a Desert Tiger shirt so far. These things are still flying off of my shelf. It's my shelf. We're not even going to say the store shelf. It's my shelf. Please get them out of here. Help me get rid of these. I've got sizes small to extra large. You guys can pick them up. And when you do, it puts more money into the jukebox because we try and purchase as much of the music as we possibly can for this show so that we are supporting our guests and our musicians as much as we possibly can. So with that being said, it is time to play another song off of American University by our guest, John Dist. Let's go through the jukebox. What do we have? I like the sounds of this one. This is Shutterbug. I was out with Bill Shelley in front of the school book depository on the stairs, watching the motorcade. Surely someone must have taken a photograph. Snapshot, baby, Patsy on the stairs with a thumb tucked V and cut and paste hair. Don't need no commission, see the juxtaposition. Assassination lies right in front of your eyes. Shut up, bug. Well, they- 
Desert Tiger Podcast. Okay, so... Yeah, I remember seeing that. Yeah. So for those of us in the younger generations that don't necessarily understand what was happening at this time, paint the picture for us. Paint the picture of what the album is actually trying to tell us. Like, why would they want to kill John F. Kennedy? Well, there's, there's, there's things that lined up that don't necessarily have to do with each other that kind of propelled it, I believe. It may have happened anyway. I don't mm-hmm. know. But um, the story that most people tell is the story that is told in James Douglas's book, JFK and Unspeakable, which is about how he turned toward peace and um, became basically like a peace activist president um, and, you know, was working to end the Cold War and he was planning to stop the Vietnam War before it even got started. And um, that he was surrounded by hardliners who wanted to actually go to war with with the Soviet Union mm-hmm. because even even though they knew they might lose a couple of cities they thought they would win in the end and and he was just like he couldn't believe that that's what these people were thinking mm-hmm. you know he was like the one he and his brother were like the only two people in that cabinet who who weren't gung-ho about uh well I shouldn't say cabinet like it was they talk about the the joint chiefs the Joint Chiefs wanted war with Russia. And, you know, it got to a point with the um, missile crisis where uh, they actually thought that, that the military might strike without his permission. Mm-hmm. And they wrote a, a letter. to He and Khrushchev had been exchanging uh, letters. Yeah. And um, Bobby Kennedy delivered a letter that was then given to uh, Khrushchev and where he told him, like, my brother doesn't know if he's going to be able to make, you know, be able to control. And he's not, he doesn't know if he's going to be able to hold them back. You know, yeah. it was becoming really scary. And Khrushchev said out loud to his, I don't know, his assistant or someone. And he said, you know, we have to help Kennedy. And it was kind of mind blowing. Mm-hmm. For for the guy who was there to hear him say that, like what, like they were Cold War enemies, you know, and and yet Khrushchev was also surrounded by hardliners. So we had these two presidents, these two leaders, speaking about peace to each other through back channels, and they were both surrounded by hardliners that wanted war, you know, mm-hmm. and um, Kennedy was killed, and Khrushchev was taken out of power within like a year after. Kennedy's death. So that's basically the story, and um, you know that he was, you know, he 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 fired Alan Dulles after the Bay of Pigs. Alan Dulles was head of the CIA for like since its inception, I think. And um, that was another thing, you know. They 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 basically blame the CIA most people. But the the thing that I found out when when I was at this. Uh, this um, conference 
there was a presentation by a guy who talked about Johnson's involvement, and that was unbelievable to me. And, it, and it's not as sexy of a story, you know, like the the spy story, the spy version is really, you know, kind of kind of more just got more intrigue and everything. But um, John, the Johnson part is is like this guy, his name's Philip Nelson. He did like he's written three volumes, I think three or four volumes on Johnson. And the first one is called LBJ, the mastermind of the Kennedy assassination. And the book is like, you know, as thick as a brick and, and just full of, of, um, uh, everything is cited and it's just impeccably researched. And, you know, it's all from other sources and other books. It's not like he did original research, but he, you know, puts things together from, that other people have reported and witnesses and conversations and letters and things. And um, it just it just paints a picture that Johnson uh, wanted that position and he was going to get that position. And he very likely blackmailed himself onto the ticket to be in that position because he had been saying since he was a child that he was going to become president. And he knew he probably couldn't win an election, mm-hmm. so he would have to inherit it. So there's so much evidence that that he was involved in this, and so that's why I say it's like a double. It's it's sort of like I believe that like these two things stacked up. Johnson, who lived down the street, it's like across the street from Jagger Hoover. They were good friends. They would walk their dogs together and talk. Um, he, you know, they had secrets on everybody. And, um, so it's like, you know, you have the CIA angle, you have, you have the mafia angle. They, you know, they felt betrayed by the Kennedys probably multiple ways. Bobby went after them and after they helped him get elected, you know, the mob supposedly helped rig the election in, in Chicago for Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And then Bobby went after them as attorney. I guess it was when he was attorney general, he went after them. And so um, the mob had a motive. The, the Cubans had a motive. The anti-Castro Cubans had a motive because they were um, they felt betrayed after the Bay of Pigs. So you have, and they all worked together. Like the CIA worked with the mob. The CIA worked with the anti-Castro Cubans to try and kill Castro. You know, and so like all these people, were, and the and the mob also wanted Castro killed. So these these were these were groups that work together all the time anyway. And then you have Johnson as, pres- as vice president who's, who would inherit the presidency and cover it all up. It's it's uh, it's pretty compelling. Yeah, the uh, puzzle pieces definitely fit in place in that situation for sure. Yeah, it's. I mean, the thing is, is like if you start to read about it, you just can't believe how much stuff they know they always say, we'll never know the truth, but they know so much, man. There's mm-hmm. so much that you can't even, like, dispute, you know? And it's mm-hmm. it's just unbelievable. That's what, that's, what's so, that's what blew my mind. I mean, I always thought that it was a bunch of theories. I never knew that people had, that there was so much information about this. Hmm. See, that's something that I had never actually had seen either was all the information it's just something that like i had heard through popular culture or other things right yeah you can't get it on the internet you can't get it in in, you know youtube videos and 
I kind of have a problem with uh, the idea of just like watching YouTube and, and reading blogs. Like you have to read books and that's part of it too. It's like I would tell people to read these books and no one would read it. Mm-hmm. No one would read anything I would tell them to read. I'd be like, you don't understand. Like, and you just have to read it because every page is full of facts that will just blow your mind, you know. There's like volumes of books written by people who dedicated their lives to the truth, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, this information is just like lost. Like not not enough people are, are reading it. And it's not being taught in any schools and it's not making it into films. And uh, so that's, you know, why I think it's important mm-hmm. Cause there was... to use art, you know. There was one film that was attempted to be made on it, or was made on it, but there was quite a bit of backlash, was there not? Well, the Oliver Stone one is the reason why we had so many of these documents that were released this year, Mm -hmm. um, or last year. Uh, Oliver Stone made his film, I think, in 1991, but Oliver Stone says, like, there will never be another film like that. Like, I could never do it today, and... um, he told David Talbot, the author of this book, Brothers, which is about Bobby Kennedy and his own investigation of his brother's assassination and how he planned to investigate it as president when he became president and, and punish the people who did it, you know? Um, Oliver Stone told David Talbot, you'll never make a movie about this book because he got it almost green-lighted with, I think it was the Stars Network, they were going to make his book into a, into like a miniseries, and they, they cut it, like last minute, just dropped it, mm-hmm. with no explanation. And Oliver Stone told him, it'll never happen in Hollywood ever again. Like, every film has a CIA liaison on it, you know, and that's the kind of thing these guys do. Like, they, they make sure they blame Kennedy for Vietnam, they make mm-hmm. sure and make him seem like he was a hawk you know like there was it's not so much about covering up that there was a conspiracy to kill him but it's like to cover up that there was a motive to kill him yeah they're trying to give all this other misinformation and other reasons to try and not trust him as 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 an individual because john himself like he did actually stop a um false flag uh plan against cuba did he not he was at a meeting where they presented the idea Mm -hmm. for operation northwoods where they were going to like bomb a plane or something and blame cubans uh yeah he walked out of that meeting and he said and we call ourselves the human rights yeah that's pretty powerful hmm yeah. So I can I can see how right there he's already making enemies in that room alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, in so many levels. I mean, he was making enemies. <laughs> I mean, nonstop he was going against. You know, he he was against um, all these CIA coups. He was for promoting democracy in third world countries. It's everything the CIA was against. He was for. You know. Mm-hmm. Trying to better the world so that everybody can have a piece of a pie rather than, hey, we're just going to sit here at the top of the mountain. Yeah, I mean, he really seemed like, you know, his wife said it, and, and she didn't, I don't think she was privy to most of what was going on. 
Mm-hmm. But um, the song I have on the album called Blood and Red Roses is based on an interview she did with, I think his name's Theodore White. The movie Jackie is based on that interview um, that came out last year. Hmm. But, and that movie has like propaganda in it. Like they, they blame him for Vietnam. Yeah. Um, it's, it's crazy. But um, she even said like power made him a better person. And power usually corrupts, you know, but, but it made him a better person. Mm-hmm. And that's what's unique about him, you know? Like, he, he was in this position to save the world, and he chose to save the world, you know? That's what I believe. No, ma- what, no matter at what it cost him as an individual. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So, explain to me a bit about Mary Mayer, because that's a figure that a lot of people don't know about in history. Yeah. She was his mistress, and it didn't come out until the 70s. The National Enquirer broke the story. Um, and the book I read was written by a, chi- a, a guy who was a, uh, he was a child, when, and, and he was a friend of her son who was killed um, when they were kids. And so she was sort of like a mother figure in a way. Um, and she was murdered when he was in uh, college, I think his first year of college or prep school or something. I don't know. But he was the son of a CIA guy himself. And she had been married to a CIA guy. And she ended up having an affair with JFK. And supposedly he told people that she was his true, true love and that they were going to get married after he was out of the White House. Hmm. Well, I could see that. And oh. so she... She was a she was a peace activist. She was, um, you know, a progressive. Uh, she was all about peace and trying to get him to move toward peace. And allegedly, she they smoked pot together and maybe even did acid together, because there was sort of at the time where they were saying like if everyone would just like, you know, fry on acid, there would be peace in the world. It was that kind of thinking, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it was, you know, before the hippies, but it was, uh, you know, the CIA had started to introduce uh, LSD into the world. And some people fell for it and thought that it would be actually a good thing. Yeah, definitely. It can, it's easy to attach that ideal to it. Mm-hmm. Because, oh, yes, no, it'll take you to this other plane and everything will be fantastic. Right. Well, what happened to her was that she was murdered, uh, I think, around a year after the assassination. And it was right after the Warren Commission report came out and allegedly she flipped out about it and confronted her ex-husband, who had a pretty prominent role. prominent um, position in the CIA. Either she confronted him or other friends that she had through him that were in the CIA and um, threatened to go public with what she felt, you know, was the truth. And then she died. They murdered, someone murdered her and, and she was going for a walk by her house and she was murdered, shot. And they tried to frame a guy for it, and he got off. 
Really? Because they just didn't have it. Yeah, they just didn't have a case against him. Huh. So it's an unsolved mystery. Wow, I'm surprised that they didn't just yeah. use the heart attack gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know that. There's a quote um, from that guy who wrote that book. A, a CIA guy had told him something to the effect of, anyone can commit a murder, but only a real pro can commit a suicide. <laughs> yep. Is that not the truth when it comes to the CIA? <laughs> I know, man. Okay. So we'll go with one more question here on this topic, and then we'll get into some of your influences. Okay. What is the fix on Lee Harvey Oswald? Well, that's a very controversial one. Um, yes. <clears throat> one, of, one of the first things that also sparked my interest about doing this project was a friend of mine was going to see this woman talk here in L.A. who was uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's mistress. And... I instantly was like, whatever, you know, because I hadn't really gotten into this whole thing yet. And he went to it, and he came back and he told me about it. And he said, oh, yeah, she says that, like, he was actually trying to help the president and stuff. I was like, what? You know, like, it blew my mind. Like, I never even thought that was a possibility, you know. Yeah. So I ended up uh, getting her book, and it's extremely credible. Um, a lot of researchers believe her. Some researchers don't, but they don't, they're not able to, uh, debunk her. Yeah. They just, they just say she could have made it up, but they don't, they don't prove that she made it up because she has a lot of, if she didn't make it up, she did a lot of research, Yeah. but she does have some witnesses and she has like, she has like, uh, um, time cards and stuff like cause she worked with him she was punching him in and out while he was, you know, so basically her story is that he was in the CIA and she was working for the CIA unwittingly. Um, and they fell in love and, you know, he penetrated this, uh, this group that was plotting to kill the president and he wanted to stop it. Like he wanted to be a hero and his, according to her, you know, he wanted to, he wanted to do something for his country, you know? And, um, so as this thing became closer and closer, he realized that he was going to be framed for it. And, um, and it was just like a sad, tragic story. Yeah, without a doubt. So exactly how does he <clears throat> end up getting framed for this? How does he end up what? I'm sorry. How does he end up getting framed? Well, I think that, that uh, they they knew that they were going to frame him for it way in advance. They've been, you know, plotting. But first of all, there was another plot, and there may have been even more plots. Yeah. But there was one in Chicago. There was one in Chicago that was foiled, and they actually had a patsy in Chicago that they were going to frame that they ended up. But I think he ended up getting arrested. Um, I forget the details on that. But the interesting thing is that she says, Judith Baker, that's her name, she says that 
he called the FBI and warned them about the Chicago plot. And there's a Secret Service guy named Abraham Bolden who wrote a book about his own experiences during that time. And he says, separately from her, that a man named Lee is the one who warned them about this Chicago plot, which they foiled. So it it was like these things are so elaborate, you know. Mm -hmm. They may have had more than one scenario planned. If one didn't work, then they'd try another one. Um, I think there was something in Florida they were that was planned as well, but I don't know any. I don't remember any details about that. Mm-hmm. So but, they possibly um, found out that he was onto them, and then decided that the best way to take him out would be to include him in the plot. Right. Maybe. Maybe he. She says now that she believes that maybe he was lured into that group. Um that he didn't join of of his own accord, that he was sort of lured into it. Who knows? Like, he was involved. He was a CIA guy. He was involved Mm -hmm. with... They say he was working for the FBI and the CIA at the same time. Hmm. Um, So there's the possibility that the CIA had already picked him and then groomed him into this group? Yeah, maybe. I, I don't really know. That stuff is murky. Like, what he did during the day when he wasn't with her, she doesn't... Yeah. You know, so she doesn't really know everything. Absolutely. But um, that's her story, and I think it's pretty pretty amazing. And the other the other piece of this that I the, the really the only real original part the original idea that I offer in this record is that he knew, according to her, he knew that they were going to frame him. And he couldn't, he didn't know, like he had no choice but to be there. And at the last minute, you know, he was trying, according to her, he was trying to think of things he could do to try to save the president. Mm -hmm. And in the end, she doesn't know what he did. But there's a photograph of... um, the assassination, the, the first shot, there's a photograph of the depository building and all the people standing there and the limos going by. And there's two things about it. There's a guy that looks just like Lee Harvey Oswald standing on the top of the stairs. Mm-hmm. And LBJ is not in his car. So you, you zoom in on the LBJ situation and he was ducked down, pretending that he was listening to the radio as they went around that curve on Elm Street. Um, so it implies that he had foreknowledge. Um, and he made up a story that somebody jumped, that a guy in his car jumped on him and pulled him down to safety. But it was, it was that shot was taken as the first bullet was shot. As the first bullet hit him in the throat. So um, there's no way that, that that guy could have had time to jump on LBJ and pull him down. Yeah. So there's that. But then the, the guy who looks like like Oswald, um, if you zoom in, you can see that the photo's been doctored. And there's like a whole thing about it. I mean, like I watched a whole presentation about it. But they say, they have a guy they say it was, which is one of his coworkers. But they couldn't, 
it's a rough composite of both of them it looks like you know like certain things look like Oswald and certain things look like this other guy like the hair looks like the other guy but the face looks like Oswald and the shirt is Oswald and the other shirt the outer shirt is Oswald and the stance is Oswald so it's like you know there's too many points of this is what the presenter said that, that I watched talk about it there's statistically it's impossible for it not to be Oswald because there's too many points of similarity between that guy standing there in the Harvey Oswald. So my theory is that he's like, I know they're going to frame me for this. What should, where should I go? I'm going to stand right here on the stairs in front of everyone. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what he did. And I think that's where he was. And he's the top guy. In that photograph, it's called Algen 6. Ike Algen was the AP photographer. He's the top guy on that staircase. In that photo, his head is higher than everyone else's. Mm -hmm. It's pretty amazing. To me, that's the closest thing we have to like a smoking gun. You know? Yeah, without a doubt. And they say that he, there's no way he could have gotten down to the second floor the first floor from the sixth floor in the amount of seconds it was before a cop saw him getting a coke out of the machine at the you know in that first floor so um that's been repeated over and over and over that there's no way he could have been up there in the sixth floor because he would have been breathing hard and he wasn't and there just wasn't time mm -hmm. just doesn't match up at all right and I think that they thought they were going to kill him. And, and I don't know, somehow they didn't, you know, in the theater, they didn't kill him and they had to have Ruby kill him. Yeah. Hmm. Very interesting. I'm definitely going to have to look into a lot of these books and I've been going through the album and it's definitely been piquing my interest in it for sure. <laughs> That's great, man. That's good to hear. Awesome. It's okay. fascinating stuff. I mean, it's better than any fiction you'll read I, I think well I mean that's the thing is it actually is something that happened and it's something that where so many things have been muddled or mixed up or hidden where it's are we ever actually gonna know what happened yeah yeah I mean they say people say that and researchers like to act like they have no idea they're just guessing you know but I think they like to perpetuate the mystery. I feel like I know what happened now. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I don't feel like I need to read any more about it because it all makes sense to me. And I don't know, like, who the shooters were, but I don't really care. Does it really matter? I don't feel like it really matters. It, interesting, but... At this point, it almost doesn't. Like, yes, it would be interesting to find out what truly happened and why it did, but at this point in time that person is definitely not going to be brought to justice. Right. Exactly. If they're even still alive. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was a, you know, more than one. I think there was a triangulation. Mm -hmm. Probably at least like three. I don't know. Definitely. Make sure that you get the job done, have a few different angles just so that you can, yeah. finalize i guess 
And the other thing that she talks about, his his mistress talks about, is that there was an abort mission, and that he was part of an abort mission. And there's a guy who was a pilot for the CIA who says he was part of an abort mission, and that he knew Oswald, but he didn't say he was part of this mission. But um, he said that they didn't get there in time. So it's pretty interesting. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, very, very like a different faction of the CIA or something. Really? Yeah. One that maybe was not privy to everything? Yeah, but then I read the interview with the guy, and, and the interviewer goes, have you thought about the possibility that maybe the people you were flying in were not part of an abort mission, but they were the killers themselves, the shooters? And he's like, yeah, I've thought of that. Huh. <laughs> so it's just crazy, man. It's like a house of mirrors. Wow. It definitely could yeah. be, right? Because all you have to tell him is he's doing his job and he believes it. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Okay. So we've been going for well over an hour now. So let's get into some of your influences and other things here. Okay. So we spoke earlier that Kiss is one of your bigger musical influences in the rock and roll world. Who are some of the other artists that helped build and mold you as a rock and roll musician um there's a lot you know stylistically in in the period of kiss it's like bands like aerosmith you know um ufo and Lizzy, um and and also bands like the ramones and um sex pistols uh I got into that stuff a little later in life. When I was a kid, I didn't know about punk rock. Um, but also, you know, a big influence for me is like Henry Rollins. I, I love his stuff. And I've read like every book, he, almost every book he's written. And um, I've been a huge fan of, you know, I, just felt, I always found meaning in his music. Um People like Sinead O'Connor, too. I found a lot of meaning in her music. So it, it's sort of, like, stylistically, I like one thing, and then, like, for lyrics, I like another thing. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt. Because, like, earlier when you mentioned Velvet Revolver, I could kind of feel that in the riffs in the album. <laughs> uh-huh. And then I can definitely feel, yeah. like, the, punks, the punk side of things in your vocals. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did that for a while. It was like almost like the Ramones. Like our band was like pretty much modeled after the Ramones with like a female singer, and so I'm sure some of that carry over. I, I definitely think that it did. I feel that it did in the sound for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in the future of John Dist as a musician, is there any other topics that you feel you want to cover? in your writing or do you feel that you're going to go a different direction? I don't know, man. I, you know, it's like I, right when I finished the red flag thing, my friends were like, you have to start your next album now. And I was like, I don't even feel like I have any ideas. Like, I don't even know what I would do. I don't want to repeat myself, you know? Um, so I don't know. I, I mean, I'm, I'm reading a ton of stuff and I could go in different directions, but like the, the um, the scary deep politics stuff is like way more 
there's much more going on than just the JFK assassination. I mean, it just continues and continues, and it's just like an endless thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if I want to write about that anymore or not. Like, maybe, but, yeah, you know, it gets into, like, John Lennon, and, you know, I mean, it's just crazy. Mm-hmm. So that stuff is interesting to me, but, you know, also, you know, like... Um, the environment, um, you know, they, that's interesting to me. Um, what's happening with the environment? And I don't know. I thought about making an album about that. Like that would be weird. Like that would be totally different. You know. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It definitely could be an interesting exploration for sure. Yeah, there's some writers that just write like poetry about mm-hmm. like essays that are just like poetry about it and like that stuff is really compelling to me i can see that definitely yeah. it's, nature is a wonderful muse right and then and then also you know like indigenous populations and what we did to the indigenous population here in america and how we took it over and slavery and all that stuff like i don't know i think about that sometimes like maybe Mm-hmm. I'm, I play a song. We're playing a song. My band uh, called uh, "Genocide" by Sin Lizzie, and it's about the Native Americans. And it's it's a it's a profound song. I'm working on an acoustic version of it right now. But we play electric, and it's just all of us are just like humbled by that song. We're just so blown away by it. And I've thought about maybe I should make an album about this kind of you know this topic because it's so important mm-hmm. definitely and it is another one of those things that is sort of buried under the revisionist history yes that's what that song's about too which is fascinating you know he opens up with um, um, when they try to tell you knowledge is a dangerous thing uh, the people that have it are the people that sin the people that need it are the people that will never win. Ah, <laughs> hmm. hmm. oh, Phil Lynott was profound. amazing. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, right? There's a story about him I heard on a podcast uh, where he was backstage. No, he was already dead, I think, but it was like um, Bob Dylan, Gene Simmons, and I don't know who it was, like Bob Daisley or someone from... Ozzy's band, and they were talking about Phil Linet, and um, Gene Simmons says he was just a junkie, and Bob Dylan says he was a genius. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was. One of my favorite bassists and lyricists of all time. Yeah, yeah. Incredible awesome. talent. Incredible talent. All right, so we've been going for well over an hour now. Um, so we're probably going to wrap things up as we're getting near midnight for both of us. Sure. All right, so before I ask my last question, John, where can my listeners find out more about you and your music? I'd say go to johndist.com, and there's a link right there on the front page where you can order the CD. And uh, or you can get the Red Flag CD. You can hear the Red Flag CD on iTunes or um, 
all the other places where you can stream. Um, this one, I'm keeping it physical product only for now. Maybe always. I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm kind of wanting to keep it a little closer to the, closer. <laughs> Not have it everywhere. It's kind yeah. of scary. I was kind of scared to do this record actually. Hmm. Why was that? I don't know, man. Because <laughs> I read about tons of tons of musicians who've been. Uh, I don't know. I told you about John Lennon, and there's just like so many other stories that if you dig, you start to learn stuff, and yes. it's like pretty dangerous for musicians to tell the truth. And a fame, I don't yeah. think a famous musician could get away with doing this. The fact that I'm unknown is probably the only reason. Yeah, it's true because usually if you attempt to raise your voice, anything past what they want you to, there is usually some form of damning evidence or something that suddenly appears out of nowhere and is extremely hard to come back from. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, I don't know. It, it kind of freaks me out a little bit. They're, they're very good at smearing. But also, you know, stream. nobody's downloading music anymore and streaming music is like .001 pennies per per stream and I just feel like I'd rather keep it scarce and have it be worth more. It's understandable as well. It's respecting yourself as a musician in a manner. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that, so right now you can order a CD, but that's that's all I have available as CDs. That's fair. It's understandable. Okay. So cool, man. last question, my friend. As somebody who has had to find his own truth against other influences, propaganda, and everything else, what is your advice to somebody who maybe is a little bit afraid to take those steps in finding out who they are and who what the world is? Man, no. <laughs> Just go, just follow your heart and, and try not to uh, let anybody else tell you, you know. Yeah. That... Be honest with yourself and don't be afraid to pursue what you want. And I, I, I think like, you know, one of the songs on this record is, uh, it's, it's about Bobby Kennedy. The world is not the real world. And one of the quotes in the song, one of the lines in the song is, do what you're afraid to do. He used to tell his kid that, I found out, after I wrote the song. Mm-hmm. Um, Bobby Kennedy, Robert Kennedy Jr. says that his dad used to tell him, do what you're afraid to do. And one of the things I was afraid to do was to sing. I never sang in my life. I'm totally shy. And I've been dancing, and I never danced in my life, and lately I've been dancing. You just take steps, you know. I mean, the first time I actually sang in the studio, it was my studio. I was still terrified to do it, to open my mouth and sing. Um, just take, you know, find what you're afraid to do and just take small steps toward it, and eventually you'll just be full on, you know, doing it. That's something that I'd say I've learned. Fantastic answer. All right. Cool, man. Thank you so much for joining me today, John. Thank you. Ah, uh, no, 
it's that time again, you guys. It is the end of the episode, the end of number 41 of the DTP. But do not fret, because we're going to be back again next week, next Thursday, with another spectacular super episode of Desert Tiger for your listening pleasure. Uh, If you guys can't tell, but I'm totally holding a Superman pose right now. So, first off, before we let you go, I want to go ahead and thank today's guest, John Dist, for going ahead and sharing his story, his experiences, his journey, his research, everything with us in this interview. I had a great time talking to John himself. I hope you guys enjoyed this interview. And with that being said, I also need to go and thank you guys, the listeners here at the Desert Tiger Podcast, for following and subscribing, for sharing your favorite episodes of the podcast, for telling your friends about the show, all those crazy, amazing things that you guys do every single week. I couldn't love you any more than I already possibly do for it. And thank you so, so very, very, very much. Mwah, mwah, mwah. So as you guys know, we love ending off this show with quotes. That's right, some quotes that will generally leave you inspired, motivated, you know, do your thing to go out there and pursue your dreams and never let down, never relent to get what you want without hurting other people, of course. So, we are going to use a quote from the man of the hour, the one we've been speaking about this entire time, Mr. John F. Kennedy. Our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future. And we are all mortal. With that being said, be thankful for everything that you have. Be thankful for your loved ones and your experiences. And until next week, have yourself a great time.